Hello, I'm Yolanda Brown and welcome to LPO Offstage. This is the podcast that gets behind the scenes with the musicians of the London Philharmonic Orchestra. Today we're finding out about recordings and we are sitting in the Henrywood Hall with a live audience for the very first time. We want to find out how does the LPO choose which works to record and how does the recording process work. We're joined by recordings consultant Matthew Freeman, violin player Fiona Hyam and piccolo player Stuart McElwam. Great to have you with us, Matthew, Fiona and Stuart. Hi, Yolanda. Good evening. Thank you. If you could just give them a lovely round of applause because we never get to do this. (laughs) (laughs) Matthew Freeman, Fiona Hyam and Stuart McElwam. Thank you for that applause. That's lovely. Okay. Now, I'm going to start with you, Matthew. You've been the recordings consultant since 2005. I want to really find out how you record this bunch of wonderful musicians. Where did it all start? My role started with the orchestra in 2000 and I think late 2003. The then chief executive, Tim Walker, was at a crossroads with the recording profile of the orchestra. He and I had worked together in several capacities in Australia, our home country his birthday today for all those LPO fans. And he asked me to do an appraisal of where the industry is at. But to put it in perspective, at that stage, the orchestra had Kurt Mazur as its chief conductor. Kurt Mazur had come off a 15-year tenure, I think, roughly 15-year tenure with the New York Philharmonic. He'd recorded extensively for Teldec in those years. He was in the twilight of his career, probably mid-70s. And the record industry had changed as well from a point of view of the glory days of the major labels, EMI or Deutsche Grammophon or Decca, putting orchestras into the studio and paying big fees for them to sit there for three or four days. Those days had largely dried up, so it was a matter of the orchestra repositioning themselves. So I did a bit of work for Tim, just sort of evaluating the position of the market, where the orchestra was at and what the orchestra could do going forwards. And I gave him three or four options, which I'll unpack very briefly, but you know, the first option was the orchestra sits back and becomes a, a work-for-hire orchestra and waits for a record label or a conductor or a soloist to come and engage them. The other option is to look at making recordings at their own cost and licensing them to a record label, but then on a case-by-case basis. It has to fit in with the plans that that record label might have. The other option is the orchestra pays for the recordings, and there's a deal in the industry called pressing and distribution. You make the recordings, the distributor will then press and distribute it for you, and the marketing and the promotion is left to you as the organisation behind the label. And the fourth option was set up your own label. And the advantages of setting up your own label was ultimately controlling your recorded destiny, I suppose. That's probably in a nutshell. And you get to own all the rights. And while the financial risks are slightly greater long term you own everything you're doing so we're 15 years down the track and you know 90% of the orchestra's recordings they own very very good and Stuart what were some of the conversations that were happening at that point probably when it was still an idea towards the musicians did they feel excited about it or basically we had to find a financial model that would allow us to actually record in the festival hall recording live prior to that was basically just like recording live in a in a recording studio be it abbey road or watford town hall for every 20 minutes of music you recorded you had to pay a session fee and if you're recording something like marla five that would be like five session fees and i actually did that earlier on in my career you know and 
it was a lot of money to pay each player. And of course, that's just not going to be financially viable. So we sort of restructured the way we were paid overall. There's a previous chief executive, Serge Dorney, who set up that restructuring and we went onto a coal fee system. So we were basically paid the same fee for all the work we were doing, whether it was a, a festival hall or an Eastbourne or a Brighton or a concert in, in Germany on tour. But what we built into that was a media fee for all of our Royal Festival Hall concerts, which basically was like a buyout so that if we chose to record that concert, we could then legitimately use that as like an advance payment to create a recording. And with the hope that uh, with revenue earned in the future, we'd be getting royalties, which we, we, we have been paid. We get paid that media fee on every Royal Festival Hall concert, whether we record it or not. So basically that opened the door. And of course, it's um, something that we had to get everybody to buy into because it's obviously not the sort of level of reimbursement that we would normally accept. But as Matthew's already said, you know, we own the product, we control it, and there is the potential for revenue income. So I think everybody saw that the whole sector was changing and the, and the chances of getting the level of commercial work that we wanted to record standard orchestral repertoire with our principal conductors and things just wasn't really going to happen. Mm. So I think it was a really bold and brave move. History has shown that it's, it's been a fantastic thing for us. Absolutely. Yeah. And Fiona, taking your mind back, I mean, now you can say the amazing things that Stuart's just said and the, the legacy that has been left, but change is always difficult. What were some of the fors and against from the musicians? Well, I think, like Stuart said, it was, the, the idea was born out of the collapse of the classical music recording industry and we had to do something but I do think that at the beginning probably a lot of the musicians were quite suspicious of the idea of oh we're going to give away all our performances we're not going to get paid anymore to, to record but there's all sorts of things also factors as well about the way we used to record in the old days you know when we used to go into EMI studios and things with Wolfgang Savalish and things like that which was of course the most incredible experience but at the same time, the experience of recording only in a studio is a strange one for musicians. The process can be quite laborious. You know, at least with a live recording, you're playing a performance to an audience and you're doing it once and then you're sort of patching exactly. afterwards. Exactly, and I think the emotion that you feel when you're actually performing is different from a rehearsal, for instance, and going into a studio dry, even with a great conductor, it's very difficult to turn on that that feeling, that emotion and the way you play that you would in a concert. So, and I think over the years, I've come to realise that this is really a great thing, our LPO Live label, because not only, as you say, it's an absolute document to what we've done, you know, and it's part of our history. It's a, it's a, it's a legacy and it's also, it's there forever, really, even if people stop buying CDs and... Yeah, in the old days of recording, I do remember Kurt Mazur, for instance, was... He actually didn't like recording in studios in that way of doing one take and then another take and chopping them, putting them together. He liked to do really long takes. Do you remember that, Stuart? I mean, we went to Snake Maltings. Maybe a little, a little bit before my time, but... Uh. Did you, well, we did, um, we did all the Schumann symphonies with him in Snake Maltings, which was a wonderful experience because it was not a dry recording studio, but 
there wasn't an audience there. It wasn't a live recording. And what he wanted to do was very much keep it as live as possible. So he, he would like to do a whole take of a movement. And, of course, it was quite tiring because then we'd do a whole take again of the whole movement. But we got more of a natural effect and, a, and a res the result, I think, is wonderful. And I listened to those, those recordings the other day. Um, and just, and just to put what Fiona's saying in context, yeah. recording under studio conditions, very rarely will a musician play the entire movement. It's basically you're, you're making the constituent parts of a jigsaw puzzle. The pieces of the jigsaw puzzle are put together in the edit editing process. So you, you can speak to a musician two weeks after they've spent a week in Abbey Road and honestly they can't remember what they were recording Absolutely. because they've never played the complete... Take, uh, they're doing <laughs> four bars here, another six bars here. It's, it's, um, it's quite, I imagine, quite demoralising. It was a strange process in some ways. Stuart, do you remember your very first LPO recording? What was it? Where LPO were you? live recording. <laughs> yes, live recording. <laughs> I believe it was Rachmaninoff Symphonic Dances with, with Vladimir Yurovsky. And, you know, it was at the very, the very early days of the concept of the label. And I think, as Fiona's already said, you know, there were some people that were maybe uncertain about what we were doing because there is the element of thinking you're doing a live concert and that should be your focus, but you're also trying to make a record or a recording at the same time. And some people felt there might be some element of compromise there. Certainly, on the day of the concert, the rehearsal in the morning is recorded. So it sort of changes the dynamic of that rehearsal because you know that the microphones are on. Yes. You know, so you can't drop your pencil on the floor. Or, and you feel like you've also got to give a performance as well because it might be using some of that material on the final CD. And that increases the pressure especially people who might have big solos in the piece. That has taken a degree of time to get used to. But I think, I think we're sort of there now, you know, where everybody realises the benefits of, of what we're doing. And like, like anything, once it becomes more the norm, you feel more comfortable with it. Um, there is an, almost a, an energy, a spark that comes when you are in live performance mode anyway. So I guess to be able to capture that is something quite special. Fiona, do you remember your first LPL live recording? Um, well, it would have been the same one. <laughs> the same one. <laughs> right at the, the same one. What was your take on doing it, knowing that you know the red light is on, this is going to be marked down in history? Was there a different sort of pressure? It was very, you know, tense in a way. It made made you feel very nervous, actually, in a way that you wouldn't normally, especially especially as Stuart was saying in the rehearsals, because especially brass, brass players who might hold back a little bit, you know, in the rehearsal. They were having to sort of give everything in the morning as well as in the evening. And, and that's a lot, really. But, yeah, well, the increased performance pressure is, is quite a lot. But I think over the years, as Stuart said, we've got used to it and maybe just relaxed a bit more. And we just, we don't sit there thinking, oh, they're recording it, you know. Stuart, what sort of adjustments did you feel you had to make for those recordings compared to what life was like before? Well, especially uh, for the rehearsal in the morning, uh, you, you sort of felt that you, you couldn't just turn up at 25 past 10 and walk onto the stage with all your bags and everything, you know, and just get the instrument out. And then in a rehearsal, quite often you can warm up as it, as it goes along. But knowing that you might have to play something quite exposed within the first few minutes. I mean, I hear a lot of, of the musicians in some of the, the dressing rooms upstairs warming up 
half an hour, maybe even an hour before the 10.30 start, making sure that you know, they're in the performance zone. So that dictates that you might have to get an earlier train or something or just, just look at it, you know, spend a lot more money as a result. But uh, you've got to be prepared that you're being recorded. So, Fiona, what is patching and does that give you a little bit of patching, respite? Patching is the extra bit of recording session that we add on if necessary, this is not always necessary, after the concert's finished. So literally, the moment the audience has gone out of the hall, we'll come back in onto the stage. Usually we might have time to run out and change our clothes and then come back onto the stage, but it's literally five, ten minutes. And then at the end of the concert, and it could be close to ten o'clock at night, we'll go in and do a few more minutes. If there's been something like a cough in the audience or a split note or something has gone wrong that we can put right Mm -hmm. in that time. And and then we're down to the producers and their techniques because they're very, very skilled at saying, we need to do this, this, and this, and this, and they can usually do it within a very small time frame. But I have to say, that's when I start to get very nervous because I live outside London. (laughs) And if it gets close to 10.30 at night, I start thinking, my train. the, The musicians have also, they've got over the finish line. That's the other thing. So psychologically, as a musician, you're over the finish line. It's like being a marathon runner and being asked to, can you just redo the last two miles? Because your, your last two miles were like six-minute miles and not four-minute miles or whatever. But the whole thing is revving the musicians up and getting them in the psychology to come back and get the adrenaline drive of a performance mode. It is a difficult moment because, you, you know, usually sometimes you're very, very hot, very sweaty. You've run out, changed your clothes, back onto the stage and suddenly you have to focus and mm. play passage perfectly that you might have messed up in the concert you know and it's pressure it's again it's a lot of pressure so Matthew take me through the process from the beginning right you know the piece of repertoire the the live performance that you're going to record what are the stages that lead us to patching and beyond I think the first stage is uh, Graham the recordings manager who's sitting up the back there he and the artistic director and various people from the office gather around at the beginning of the season we work out what it is we'd like to record and that generally revolves around principal conductor principal guest conductor and by and large it's orchestrally led repertoire thereafter graham does this more than i do graham will then seek the soloists and artists consent if you're doing a mala eight you've got a fair few soloists and it's not a walk-up start you know we've just done midsummer marriage recorded that the tippet again a large cast, there's a lot of clearances to do. So there's a, there's a lot of pre-planning before that. In a lot of instances, the LPO has a great track record of, of wanting to perform music that's in copyright. Copyright music is um, owned by publishers, yes. and they also like getting extra money when the microphone's put up. So there's always a bit of uh, toing and froing between Graham, myself, and publishers on getting the most cost-effective publishing fees because essentially our recordings are speculative not all of them are going to get released i'd say we have a strike rate of maybe 25 or 30 percent of what we record comes out so you've got to wangle deals with publishers and then i suppose when it comes down to the recording day essentially the recording team will arrive at the royal festival hall at about 5 30 6 o'clock in the morning sometimes we'll get in the night before but generally you try and do it in one day and you'll get in at somewhere between 6am for a 10.30 rehearsal and then 
the rehearsal is both a sound balance whereby the internal balancing of the orchestra where the microphones and that are that is part of the process with the dress rehearsal but it's also as Stuart says it's cover for for any blips that might happen in the concert mindful that when we're working with singers they will always mark so you'll never if you've got six or seven singers they're never going to sing out in the rehearsal when they've got to sing that evening so if you've got a requiem or a concert version of an opera the chances of getting the singers to build it out is very rare I mean, one exception there I think that I recall is um, the war requiem we did with Kurt Mazur and I just remember Christine Brewer just seemed to have the most amazing voice <laughs> <laughs> morning noon and night <laughs> she was um she was staggering but by and large singers are looking after their voice in the morning and so that's the rehearsal after the rehearsal i think you'll probably find the producer will spend a bit of time topping and tailing things with the conductor then then the concert happens the concert happens with the production team not interfering with the performance at all they basically let the concert run its course and it's only after the concert that um, there's a whole pile of um, post-it notes in a score and there's a mad dash backstage and conductor and producer compare notes and they agree a hit list if, um, if the musicians are up for it or if we think the concert was worthy enough to pursue for a potential release. Oh, so not, not all concerts. Some concerts just we think it hasn't worked and it falls by the wayside. So it's, the live recording process is very speculative. I'd How many say. concerts do you record a year? I would say it's between 12 and 15. Yeah, certainly over 10, but it's 12. And some of those are BBC recordings as well, and we'll work, the, the production teams will work side by side with the, uh, with the BBC team. I have a quick fire question for you all. Who is in charge during the session? And this might be up to perception the conductor, the producer, the engineer, or the orchestra, in fact. Stuart, who's in charge really? The producer. I mean, he's the one who's evaluating what's gone on to the tape and from where we sit as players you know you're you're focusing on your own role within a performance of whatever piece you're playing you don't always notice if something hasn't gone so well only the producer who's there with his headphones on listening in microscopic detail to what he's he's getting can be the judge of what needs to be redone or retaken in a patching session or whatever who would you say, Vienna? Yeah, Andrew Walton, who does most of our recordings, he's a fantastic producer. He has really good ears, you know, and he'll be listening, as Stuart says, microscopically during the concert, and then he'll he'll have a list. And the efficiency with which he kind of synthesises that down to what we need to do in a very short space of time always amazes me. And, yeah. then, and then he liaises with the conductor. So the patching session has to end at 10.30 because it all has to fit into a three-hour slot. Or oh, I'll miss my train. Oh, i miss the train, absolutely, yeah. Priorities. So the concert starts at 7.30 and anything we need to do afterwards has to finish at 10.30. And of course, if we've done a longer programme, the amount of time left for patching could only be five or ten minutes. Yes. So Andrew would then have to work out what really needs to be done and he'll come out with a sort of hit list of priorities and maybe if there's still time left, things that are maybe not so necessary to be covered. Yeah. But I'd say 50% of the releases on the label have been saved or have been made available as commercial releases because of patching. Right. So the six or eight, the hit list of six or eight things takes it from being ordinary to extraordinary. And how do you choose the repertoire to record? How, how, who chooses and how do you choose? I think... Uh, I'm, uh, I'm uh, seeing uh, some smiles being exchanged That's a loaded here. question. 
If we're doing anything really interesting, it's unlikely that a record company would ever want to take it on. You know, obviously we'd try and get something that was like a, a premiere or a new piece. If we're, we've got a particular conductor, guest conductor, it would depend on whether they've already recorded that piece with another orchestra. That might dictate whether we would want to take it or not. But generally, interesting repertoire, first performances, things like that, we've sort of focused on that a lot. I mean, we've got some amazing CDs of our composers in residence, Mark Anthony Turnage, Julian Anderson, just to mention two. Brit Dean will be in, in the works. Yep. Yeah. Most record labels wouldn't probably want to invest in that you know it would be a big financial risk for them but we have the ability to showcase our composers and residents Mm. again it's another fantastic document of our relationship with them you know not just our conductors but let's talk about the uh, the practical elements microphones how you record the sound and are you trying to get the final product to sound like you're an audience member listening to the orchestra or are you trying to make it feel like you're in a studio? What is the aim? I think um, you're probably in row D of the stalls of the Royal Festival Hall. I think that's possibly where where you are. It's a particular thing because the what you hear on a record versus what a musician in the orchestra will hear versus any person in the audience will hear is completely different so it's a balance and there's a lot of internal balancing with regards to an orchestral recording we might have 30 mics out there and each microphone is individually controlled so if we look at a recent release like Marla 8 Vladimir was always, I think, happy with the performance, but I'd say the biggest things we addressed in the post-production is the actual internal balancing of the orchestra and getting the the balance of the uh, sound world to his satisfaction. And that is probably coming from not the audience perspective, that's probably coming from um, him on the conductor's podium. So um, very much a personal thing there, I think. uh, And what about the practical element for you, Fiona, having a microphone around you? I know space is a very important part of feeling comfortable. Actually, we don't see the microphones at all during the Festival Hall concerts. They're not around us on the stage. Ah. It's different when we're in the pit at Glyndebourne. We would have them quite close to us, but they're up above us, in the very high up on the ceiling, So, and they're hanging down. We're not, they're not near us, so they're but not that, in our way at all. That's part of the brief, though, because, again, the LPO don't want to distract from the audience experience attending the concert, so it doesn't want to look, they don't want it looking like a recording studio. They want it to look like a concert venue first, and, again, the recordings are a byproduct of the concert experience. So it's sort of... It's very much a um, subtle so approach. Then you spoke earlier about sort of creating an archive and really telling a story of the orchestra through time. What does the archive look like? I mean, those recordings that you make, are they kept anywhere? There's a gentleman right there. He is the archive. <laughs> Laurie Watt. <laughs> Hello, Laurie. <laughs> uh, Laurie Watt has uh, done a lot of uh, pro bono work as a, as a solicitor for the orchestra over many years and is a musician himself. But as a pastime, he's collected, along with uh, several other people in the audience, recordings of the orchestra. He curates and keeps the archive and I'd say 20%, 25% of the releases come from heritage recordings from conductors such as Schulte or Tenstead. We've got a lot of fantastic recordings from Tenstead, Heitink from his tenure uh, with the orchestra, but it goes all the way back to Beecham in the 30s. So, And the sources come from Laurie's archive, but there's a a fantastic organisation, Music Preserved at York University. They have a wonderful archive. 
Charles McCarris archives at the British uh, Library, which we can access. The British Library's also been sources for the Adrian Bolt box set we put out last year. So it's, um, it, there's a, a, a massive, rich, unexplored archive coming out, all thanks to, um, largely to um, one Lawrence Watt. Thank you very much. A round of applause for Lawrence. Thank you. Is there still a place for CDs now you're still recording? Is there a place for CDs? And how has the element of downloading music changed how the output of the oh, music? It's massive in the last three or four years and pandemic hasn't helped the physical world either. But I, the LPO of all labels has a robust physical market. In 2018, it was probably roughly a 50 physical and 50 digital. Mm. It's now very close to 80 digital and 20 physical, and it's rapidly declining. And of the digital income, downloads, actually physical downloads, uh, represent very little of the income stream, and streaming is, uh, is, is massive. But that's where the orchestra are well-placed, because the orchestra has, as arts organisations go, a very, very good social media presence. And seeding stuff in the digital space is very... Um, the challenge is taken largely out of it when you have quite a good digital and social media presence and getting those two things working together believe it or not we've got a Jesse Norman release coming out early next year and we've released singles we are releasing singles off wow. the record so classical's going getting super <laughs> hip but um, essentially the, you know, the digital space is quite noisy Jesse Norman obviously is a, a very respectable dramatic soprano passed away a couple of years ago and Klaus Tenstedt is the, is the conductor in that particular instance but it's the type of release that's worthy of seeding it as a single just to get it above all the digital noise that exists out there on the Spotify's and and uh, and Apple Music and the like, and it's you know it's been added to a zillion uh, playlists over the last week or so and profiled on the platform. Vinyl, vinyl is coming back too. I mean, we do produce our recordings on vinyl as well, don't we? We, we had one set of Vladimir's Brahms symphonies. That's the only one that. Uh, has made it. Oh. But, there are uh, 53 copies left in stock from the original pressing. So if not you want anymore. One, not anymore. If you want, <laughs> get in there quick. <laughs> well, I mean, it's great to hear that the recording of the LPO moving with the times, because at the same time we can't control that. Quick fire question to you all now. I'm putting you on a desert island, not with each other, separate desert islands, and you have one desert island disc to take from the LPO label. What recording would it be, Stuart? Zemlinsky's Florentine Tragedy. <laughs> I listened to it on tour on the bus the other day and I thought it was absolutely fantastic. The recorded sound quality, the singing. It was a piece that none of us had ever played. When I saw that we were recording it, I thought, hmm. But it's one of those ones that it, it just has come out absolutely magnificently and it's also coupled with the six meter link songs, which are absolutely beautiful, you know, as Vladimir conducting, it typifies everything that we've done over the last 15 years with the label and particularly with Vladimir. It's on my desert island. That's yours to take. Brilliant. Fiona, what would it be? How many am I allowed? Just the one, I'm afraid. <laughs> Just the one. Well, I think it would be Rachmaninoff, Isle of the Dead, conducted by Vladimir Yurovsky as well, which is a fantastic piece, a fantastic recording. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And Matthew? Well, they've both gone for Vladimir recordings, so it'd be very boring to go with another Vladimir recording, although there's, um, there's a few that would accompany me on a desert island. But I think 
for me, the takeaway for me is actually seeing something in live in concert and then hearing it on record. And the takeaway as an audience member for me is seeing Berglund conducting Sibelius. And we have two Sibelius recordings on the label and there's just something... He lets the music speak as a conductor. As an audience member, you feel very at home. There's no grandiose gestures. There's no sort of um, ego there. He just lets the music speak. And for me, he, no one does Sibelius better. Wonderful. Well, we've got a playlist to listen to. Thank you all very, very much for sharing the process, sharing the feelings, and, of course, giving us some hints of what to listen to. Thank you. Thanks, Linda. Thank you. Well, that's it for now from LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. Thanks so much to Matthew Freeman, Fiona Hyam and Stuart McElwurm for a fantastic and fascinating insight into the recording process here at the LPO. Please get in touch using the hashtag OffstagePod and thank you so much for listening. Is it the patching session now? It's patching now. <laughs> Time for patching. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you.